Hey, y'all. I'm Whitney. I'm so thrilled to be here with you. Thanks for letting me hang out with you. If you have been to WOCO before, you know, um, I love, it's, it's one of my favorite things. Um, Lindsay never asks me back. I just keep showing up. <laughs> and she's like, well, I mean, she showed up again. I guess we'll let her teach. Um, I'm so grateful. It is the great delight of my life to get to be here and serve alongside this team and to to sit at the feet of Jesus with all of you. If you have been here for the last couple of years, um, it's been an interesting couple of years for me. I came in 2021, so 2021, I had been released from the hospital in September. I had had two major surgeries and came here. Um, This was the first event actually that I did after coming out of the hospital and found out that I had cancer. And so for the last two years, I have been walking through a cancer story. And then I came last year still in the middle of chemo. And then in January, I had a major surgery because they determined that my cancer had spread. And so in January of 2023, um, they cut me open from just at my sternum um, all the way down to south of there. (laughs) Um, I I joke, but it is, in all seriousness, I was kind of filleted on the operating table. I had 58 staples um, in my abdomen, and they did something called a chemo wash where they literally took my organs out and bathed them in chemo and then they put me back together and then they temporarily stitched me up and they had a tube running right at my sternum that was pumping chemo into my belly. And they, lit, they call it the shake and bake. On the table, some orderlies shook my body. I have never been more grateful for anesthesia than in all my life. And um, they shook my body so that this chemo would coat my abdomen because I had these free floating cancer cells that blood chemo can't really attack because um, blood chemo goes in your blood. And so until they set up roots and kind of make a little nest in your body, it's hard to kill those cancer cells. And so the point of this chemo wash was to eradicate those. And so I had that surgery on January 9th and um, praise God to this point, there is no cancer in my body. To the praise of this matchless name. So I wept when Tara said never again. I'll believe never again. I try and hold my cancer story very open-handed because I didn't ask. I didn't want cancer. If he had asked me the first time, I would have said, absolutely not. (laughs) No, thank you. I love all of you people. I would have sent it to any of y'all. I'm not lying. (laughs) Judge as you see fit. If he'd have said, would you want to give it to them or would you take it yourself? I'd have been like, give it away. Give it, I'll pray for them, but give it away. Um, Anyway, (laughs) I'm a 90s kid. How many of y'all heard, give it away, give it away, give it away, give it away. Red hot chili peppers. Anyway, that's sorry. That is not holy. That is not holy, but that's still inside me. Um, I just want you to know it's still in there. Um, I would have happily given it to somebody else. Again, I know that is not sacrificial. Um, and so I tried to hold open-handed. I don't know how God is gonna write the rest of my story in general, but specifically as it relates to cancer. My cancer is very aggressive. Um, and so I try and just say, Lord, you, you, You wrote the story and you get to finish it, however you finish it. Um, But I was so encouraged by Tara's message to say, never again, never again. So I'm gonna lean into that. But I just wanted to say before we open our text today, um, you loved me well in a season of hardship. And I just wanna say thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I am not yours. This is not my church home but it feels like it. And so if you don't have a church home, if you are in a season of hardship, I would plead for you to make this your home because these people love well. 
They love well. And I just want to say from the bottom of my heart, thank you for loving me through it. Thank you for praying me through it. And now on the other side of it, I can tell you, I wouldn't trade it for the world because I know him better. I know him better. He is better than you've heard. He is kinder than we can imagine. And he is more faithful than I thought possible. And so I'm so grateful that he is mine and I am his. And so it is a privilege to get to open his word together with you today. We are talking about, and uh, I think I shared this last year, but one side effect of cancer and chemo is that I cannot read anymore without readers. And, uh, and, and they're not, they're not I, I haven't figured out how, oh, there's a tear that I can't get off. There it is, okay. Um, I have tried the progressive lenses so that I don't have to take them on and off, and I haven't figured that out yet either, so I have to be awkward and put them on and take them off. But um, we have been talking today about rest and revival and restoring, and I'm gonna talk about rejoicing. And our key text for today comes from Psalm 85, so if you have your Bible, I want you to turn there with me. I wanna ask your permission just to do a couple of quick things. Um, uh, I, I blame my snot on chemo. Um, if you have been through chemo, it's a weird thing. One of my side effects was that my nose runs all the time, but then they had to go and lead worship like that, which only made it worse. So anyway, I'm so sorry. I know that's rude to sniffle and y'all get to hear it <laughs> in a microphone, no less. So I'm real sorry about that. But um, I'm gonna ask your permission, please, just to let me read the text and so I want us to sit with this for a few minutes. I'm gonna read it. I wanna give you some background, um, some of the cultural context for this particular psalm. And then I want us to have a conversation about just a few of the takeaways. And so I don't do this often, um, but it feels right for this moment. So if you're physically able, I would love for you to stand as we have the reading of the word. I wanna read this text to us out loud. So stand with me, if you will. This is Psalm 85. I'm reading from the CSB. My Bible says this is restoration of favor. And for the choir director, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Lord, you showed favor to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave your people's guilt. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your fury. You turned from your burning anger. Return to us, God of our salvation, and abandon your displeasure with us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger for all generations? Will you not revive us again so that your people may rejoice in you? Verse seven, show us your faithful love, Lord, and give us your salvation. Let me pray. Father, your word is alive and active. And Lord, you promise in your word, that it never returns void and it always accomplishes what you set out for it to do. And so, Lord, in as much as I am feeble and frail and a blunt instrument, God, I ask that you would do what you alone can do, that your Holy Spirit would speak truth, that he would interpret truth for us and that he would transform us into the image of your dear son. May we leave this place looking and living and loving more like Jesus than when we got here. And all of this will be to the praise of your matchless name. In your name I pray, amen. You can be seated. 
Okay, so this is um, a great psalm. There's so much to unpack here. I'm gonna do it as quickly as I can. But a little bit of context, because I think this kind of helps us understand maybe where the psalmist was. And so um, right from the jump, it says, for the choir director, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Now, I don't know how many of you have spent much time in Numbers or Leviticus recently. How many of you do the read through the Bible in a year plan? right? Leviticus is the graveyard of that plan. Yes and amen. We make it to Leviticus and then we're like, I didn't know I had to read about scabs. This is disgusting. Um, But there's some interesting commentary on Korah, the family of Korah in Leviticus and in Numbers. And there is um, information about the history of Korah and his family. Interestingly enough, Korah, along with some of the other members of the Levitical priesthood, brought a charge against Moses and Aaron. And this is interesting. The Bible actually records this. Their charge to Moses and Aaron was that they had taken it too far. They've taken this idea of of holiness and, and the priesthood and all of this. They literally said to Moses and to Aaron, you've taken it too far. Now, poor Moses, he was given a a lot of of really difficult assignments. And listen, I regularly feel bad for him that he had to shepherd the people of Israel until I remember that always in the Old Testament, Israel is us, always. I don't know if you were like me and you were raised in a Sunday school culture. I'm a big fan. I sat around a little kidney-shaped table with a beautiful little senior saint who taught me Sunday school on felt boards. I'm pro-Sunday school. But almost always in Sunday school, we were taught be an Esther in your generation, be a David in your generation, be like Samson, which is so interesting to me, because Samson was jacked up. (laughs) That story, like when I read it as an adult, I thought, we got a real edited version of that, didn't we, right? (laughs) What I don't remember hearing a whole lot though in Sunday school was, hey, listen, You're actually not like any of those people. In fact, almost all of the good stories in the Old Testament are to point to Jesus. They whisper what Jesus shouts. And so it's not that you and I are meant to be like David or Esther. In almost every situation, what I wished a Sunday school teacher had said to me was, hey, listen, you're actually a lot more like Israel. You're whiny and you complain and you're a little bit demanding and fairly high maintenance. This is true, this is true. And so when I read about this story, there's this part of me that wants to identify with Moses and Aaron, but in fact, I'm so much more like Korah. And we don't have time to unpack all of this, but I wanna give you this context. Moses said to those who were bringing a charge against him and Aaron, he said, listen, I want you to go back to your tents. I want you to light an incense, fire an incense, and we're just gonna let the Lord show whose are his. Fast forward to the next day, and when the charge comes before the Lord, the ground opens up, and swallows Korah. Do you remember this story? All of his family swallows them up because they brought a charge against Moses and Aaron. Let me just say this. It's not not because I love Jason and Lindsay, though I do. Be very cautious before you bring a charge against those in leadership. The Lord takes that very seriously. The Lord, I'm not joking. It is not hyperbole. And it is not merely because I love them, though I do. The Lord takes very seriously how we talk about and treat those in spiritual authority over us, those who are literally laying down their lives on behalf of the bride of Christ. And so 
God swallows up Korah. Now, the Bible records that the sons of Korah did not die. Now, we don't know exactly what that meant. We're gonna see that there's a lineage of them left because they're actually the ones who are writing this psalm, the sons of Korah. And so there must have been a remnant left of Korah's family. But just remember that it was Korah's family who said basically Moses and Aaron have taken it too far. You've gone too far with this idea of holiness and reverence and the priesthood and being set apart and reserving this as holy unto the Lord. You've taken it too far. That's the heritage of the sons of Korah. So that's the context that we step into. Now, when we read this particular Psalm, um, if your Bible doesn't footnote this, if you don't know this, write, if you happen to be a notes-taking person, write down Ezra chapter one, verse four, and 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verse 22. We think, we think, we don't know for sure, but we think the timeline of this particular Psalm is after Israel has been taken into captivity Right, you remember, if, if you have a hard time remembering it, it's ABC, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and then Cyrus. Cyrus are the Persians, but ABC. So they were taken over by the Assyrians and the Babylonians. Judah is later taken in. They're the last ones to go, which is a wild story. They watched what happened with the Northern Kingdom. The Southern Kingdom was like, not us. That would never happen to us. Happened to them. They're taken into captivity. Cyrus conquers Babylon and Cyrus, though not a believer, is used as an instrument of the Lord, and he sends the Jews home. We think this is the context in which Psalm 85 is being written. The Jews that have been in captivity have been sent home. Not only that, one of the things that Cyrus says, you guys, this is mind-blowing to me. He says, listen, I don't just want you to go home. I want you to rebuild your temple. And as you go, I don't want you just to go on your way, but I want you to ask your neighbors to help support your efforts. And I want you to take from them what they will give. And so Israel leaves captivity and they head back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and they take with them the treasure of Persia. The neighbors gathered together and gave them out of their wealth the ability to rebuild the temple. Only our God plunders our enemies for his own glory. Only our God will use our enemies for our discipline and then deal with them in his right justice and judgment so that they then literally seed his own glory. Only our God. And so this is the context we think that Psalm 85 is written. Let me read it to you again. Lord, you showed favor to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. We think that's what they're saying here. Listen, you're sending us home. We were taken out of the promised land because of our disobedience. Israel at every turn turned from the Lord. They turned from the Lord. They took up other idols. Listen, if you have ever heard somebody who say, I cannot believe that God would command them to move into Canaan and kill everybody, even the innocent women and children. There were no innocent women and children. They were sacrificing children to their idols. There was no innocent women and children there. And the Lord knew sin always corrupts. And because they let sin stay, eventually Israel turned to be like the nations around them rather than holding up Yahweh as God and God alone. And so in his judgment, God calls them and sends them into captivity. And they're now coming home. So he's restoring to them the land. Lord, you showed favor to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. So they're literally plundering their enemies as they go home to rebuild the temple. Verse two, you forgave your people's guilt. You covered all their sin. This word here, 
is a really fantastic word. If you have never known what to study, if you're in a rut in your Bible study, I want you to write this word down. It's called propitiation, P-R-O-P-I-T-I-T-I-O-N, propitiation, propitiation. Google it if you can't find it. If you get close, it'll come up. Propitiation is a Greek New Testament word that refers to the mercy seat that covered the Ark of the Covenant. That's this word here. Because Jesus becomes the propitiation for our sin. Literally, in the same way that the mercy seat covered the Holy of Holies to protect all of those who came in contact with it, Jesus becomes our covering by his death on the cross. He is the propitiation for our sins. And so that's what the psalmist is saying here. You covered all of their sins. You withdrew all your fury. You turned from your burning anger. Return to us, God of our salvation, and abandon your displeasure with us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger for all generations? This matters because part of the Deuteronomic covenant or the Mosaic covenant, which is easier to say than Deuteronomic, you would just say Mosaic covenant. God said, listen, if you do this, I'm gonna bless you. If you do this, I'm gonna curse you. Now, here's what you need to know about God. He is a covenant-keeping God. He always keeps his promises. Not one he's ever broken. But even when he punished Israel, he was keeping his promise. But he said, I will be faithful to a thousand generations. A thousand generations. But if you disobey me, this is the judgment that is coming. They are now appealing to his promise to be faithful to a thousand generations. They're saying, will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger for all generations? Because they know that the Lord said he would be more faithful longer if they were faithful than he would be angry if they were disobedient. And so they are appealing to the character of God. Verse six, will you not revive us again so that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your faithful love, O Lord, and give us your salvation. I think there is something progressive happening here. And this is where I want us to talk about some takeaways. I wanna submit to you just for the next few minutes. It would be great. It would be great. Listen, I've tried. If we could just jump to Psalm 85, six, will you not revive us again so that your people may rejoice in you? Wouldn't it be great if we could just jump into Psalms, skip one through five. Will you not revive us again, O Lord, so that your people may rejoice in you? But I think, I think the psalmist with history of knowing that their ancestors accused Moses of taking it too far, I think they learned something about the divine justice of God. And so I think they are populating this psalm with a progression. And so here's what I wanna say to you. If you have your notes, I want us to talk about, let me count them, one, two, three, four, five. We're gonna have five R's. It might be six, it doesn't matter. (laughs) I want us to talk about some R's that I think we see here. First of all, if we wanna move towards revival with the end destination being that we might rejoice in him, I think revival is a progression and I think we start with this, the first R. We have to remember Over and over and over, Israel in the Old Testament is commanded to remember. Inevitably, whenever Israel forgets, they fall into idolatry. 
Forgetfulness and idolatry go hand in hand in the Old Testament. When they forget to rehearse the goodness of God, they fall into idolatry. And so one of the first mile markers towards revival is that we must remember what God has done. We should remember it. Go back over and over again. What has he done? What has he done? Where has he been faithful? Where have I seen him act? And if you can't find it in your life, go to scripture. It's here. None of us have an excuse to be ignorant of the ways that God is faithful. It is his character. It is who he is. I read a scholar say earlier this week that the Old Testament is theology in action. You wanna know who God is? Read the Old Testament. He shows up and displays his character over and over and over again. And the psalmist is saying, remember, because he is rehearsing rehearsing what the Lord has done. That's our second R. We need to remember and rehearse. Look at this. He says, you showed favor, you restored, you forgave, you covered, you withdrew your fury, you turned from your anger. This is a list of what God has done on behalf of Israel. He is remembering and then he's rehearsing that over to himself. Forgetfulness is always tied to idolatry. However, Israel was also guilty of romanticizing their remembrance. Do you remember this part where they would say, if only you'd left us in Egypt. Oh, Egypt was so great. Moses, you brought us here to die. Sometimes we can romanticize the past and we can in our head believe that it was better than it was. If you read the Old Testament, particularly in Exodus, Israel will say over and over again, oh, that we could go back to Israel, go back to Egypt. Yo, they were slaves. They were, they were slaves. They, they, they didn't have luxuries. This was not a precious time. They were slaves and they hated it. They whined, they complained, they prayed, they begged. But sometimes, It is not merely that we are to remember the past. That leads to romanticizing. We're called to remember God. And that's the difference. If you remember without rehearsing the goodness of God, you will romanticize the past. And we are never called to be a people who want to go back to the way we were. We are a progressive people being called day by day, moment by moment into progressive holiness. And so I should never want to go back and be that version of Whitney. I shouldn't wanna go back to before cancer, Whitney. Now my body worked better, things were easier, things were tidier. I'm still not 100%, but I cannot romanticize going back to that version of Whitney. Because if I remember without rehearsing the goodness of God, then I romanticize what happened because I only think about my comfort and my convenience. That is not remembering. Remembering should always be in the context of who is God and what did he do? That's why it matters that we rehearse the character of God, even in seasons of hardship. And so the psalmist says, you showed favor to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave your people's guilt. You covered all of their sin. You withdrew your fury and turned from your burning anger. So we remember, but do not romanticize. We rehearse the goodness of God. And by the way, 
I happen to be a journaler. It's one of the spiritual disciplines that I enjoy. I don't pretend that everybody does. It's okay if you don't. But in some form or another, can I plead with you to write down what God has done for you? To keep your stories always at the front of your mind because we are a forgetful people. Again, we are Israel. And so it is so beneficial for us. That's why Israel was commanded to tell them to your generations, right? To say this over and over again. Listen, if you have not experienced, as we talked about up here, children are incredible accountability partners, right? They say things at the precise moment that you do not want to hear it. But it is good for us to instill in them the hope of who God is, perhaps before they have experienced him for themselves. And so if you are a grandparent or a great-grandparent or a great-aunt or a teacher, I would plead with you, rehearse for those in your life what God has done and who he is and how he's been faithful. And if you are a senior saint, do not believe the lie that you can or should retire. We are desperate for you to tell us what God has done and who he is. I need to know that he is going to walk me through this. I would have women come up to me and say, listen, I know, I, listen, I, I had cancer and that was 40 years ago, but I just, and I would think, are you kidding me? That's the best kind of testimony for me to think I'm gonna still be here 40 years from now and that God willing, I'll be able to look at somebody and go, listen, 40 years ago, I walked through cancer with the Lord and let me tell you how I know him. Don't hide rehearsing those stories for us. We desperately need them. And so commend his works to another generation. So we remember, but we do not romanticize. We rehearse his attributes. And then we make a request to the Lord. We make a request to the Lord. I will tell you, based on what Jess was talking about today, you'll know how tired you are by how small your prayers are. Because when we are really, really aware of our limits, we don't mean to, but we limit God. Is that true in your life? When I feel limited, I'll sometimes think, I just, I mean, I just don't know. Is that too big a prayer to pray for God? Last September, I was invited to go on a ministry sabbatical and it was a really kind gift in a season when I needed it. And um, we had a therapist who was there for us. By the way, if you have, has anybody read Dr. Alicia Britt-Choley, C-H-O-L-E? Okay, if you've not, I would commend to you Anonymous, and she just released a book called The Night is Normal, okay? Fantastic books. If you know anyone who is considering deconstructing their faith, get The Night is Normal. Fantastic resource, fantastic resource. But in my session with her, I had been talking about my, you know, that cancer was kind of what I was dealing with. And I was like, listen, it's not the most important thing about me, but in this season of life, it's the loudest. It's the loudest thing about me. Does that ring true for anybody who's in a season of hardship? I don't wanna be defined by cancer, but in that season, it was the loudest thing in my world. And I said, I just, you know, it's really selfish for me to complain. We just found out that the cancer spread, so I have to do six more rounds of chemo, and I'm gonna have this really big surgery in January, which bummed me out, because I have a, a kid that's a senior, and I just wanted to be able to soak in his last year, and so, you know, but that just feels really selfish. And she said, can you, can you tell me a little bit more about that? And I said, well, 
The Lord has been better than I deserve. Better than I deserve. He has been so unbelievably kind to me. So kind. That feels selfish of me to think that I should be exempted from this kind of pain or hardship. And so I just, you know, I just wanna receive from him whatever he's gonna give me. And she said, Whitney, your God is too small because sonship never dares to ask the father for what he longs to give. You're treating him like a slave and you're a daughter. I think our prayers tell us a lot about how small our God is. And so part of our moving towards revival and rehearsing who he is, is expanding our view of God. Because sometimes in season of hardship or exhaustion or being really, really tired, we make God small. And we need to rehearse who he is and make bold requests to him. I think that's where we see this turn in Psalm 85 verse four. The psalmist says, return to us, God of our salvation, and abandon your displeasure with us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger for all generations? Interestingly enough, this word right here, return to us, in this, in the original language, it can mean return or restore. And so it has this double meaning. I would submit to you, God does not return to us. We return to God, he restores us. It's both and. And so he's saying, listen, we wanna return to you, but God, we need you to restore us. And I think the reason the psalmist puts it here is because I would submit my theological persuasion is even our returning is an act of his mercy. Even us returning to him is a gift of him drawing us to himself. It's what he does. When he is kind enough to let me get to the end of my rope, to reach my full exhaustion, returning to him is a gift that he grants. And then he restores us. This is what it means to pray big prayers for God, because he could give us up to ourselves. If you're not familiar with that, read Romans chapter one. It's a litany of what happens when God says, you want that? Okay. This is not the prayer of the psalmist. The psalmist is saying, God, don't give me up to what I think I want. Give me you. Give me you. I don't want what I think I want. I thank God for unanswered prayers. How many of you were humming the Garth Brooks song? Some of you were, I know it. <laughs> I don't want what I think I want, God, give me you. But in the middle of all of this, in the middle of all of this, he says, you withdrew your fury, you turned from your burning anger, return to us, O God, will you prolong your anger forever? Will you not revive us again so that your people may rejoice in you? This is a little bit complicated that we don't have time to unpack for today because there's an economy of how sin is dealt with in the Old Testament that we don't have time to unpack. But know this, regardless of that economy, revival never happens in God's people as long as we ignore sin. Revival never happens in God's people as long as we ignore sin. And so when the psalmist is saying here that God has 
withdrawn his fury, that he's turned from his anger. It's not that he got over it. It's that sin was dealt with. In the new covenant context, that means that Jesus paid for it. He paid for it. God didn't just get over it. God's righteous wrath was satisfied by the innocent death of Jesus. God's wrath was satisfied. We will never experience revival as long as you and I have unconfessed sin in our lives. Now for the believer, I'm not saying that that means we don't go to heaven. That's not what I'm saying. But you won't experience heaven on earth and the abundant life that Jesus talked about if you have unconfessed sin in your life. And so I would plead with you in this moment to say to the Holy Spirit, what is the sin that is my pet? Because we all have them. For some of you, your children are your sin because you have made them an idol. For some of you, the hope of God, when you answer this prayer, that's become your sin because you put your hope in a promise rather than the promise keeper. For some of us, it is that we are lazy and we're giving up countless hours to things that have no eternal value. For some of us, it's coveting. One of the reasons I have a hard time being on social media, this may sound trivial to you, but it is the truth. I love clothes, love them, love them. Y'all, I could die 30 years from now and never need to buy another piece of clothing. <laughs> it is fine, it really, and here's the other thing, because I have jeans that are six different sizes in my closet, so I'll be just fine, <laughs> no matter what the Lord decides to do with my waistline. <laughs> but I don't need to be on social media because it makes me covet. It seeds a materialism in my heart that does not honor God. And though I may laugh about it, God is offended. But when I excuse that and don't deal with it, it limits what the Holy Spirit wants to do in my life and by necessity means that you will not experience revival, nor will I. All the jumping around, all the hand raising, all the worship in the world won't change it if you're not gonna be honest about your sin. This is what it looks like to experience revival. It's for us to repent, to repent. And then here, this is the context. Will you not revive us again so that your people may rejoice in you? Many of us want revival because we think it's gonna make our lives easier. It's gonna make our problems go away. It's gonna make the rough places smooth. And all of those could be a byproduct of revival, but the primary function of revival is that God might be exalted that Jesus might be elevated to the praise of his matchless name. And let me tell you, if you came here wanting revival for any other reason than that Jesus might be glorified, you'll leave without it. The goal is not an experience. The goal is an intimate walk with the savior of your soul and mine. That is the goal of revival. This is what the psalmist appeals to. Will you not revive us, O Lord, that we might rejoice, not in a full altar, that we might rejoice, not in Instagrammable content, that we might rejoice, not in wealth or ease or comfort, that we might rejoice, not in good reputations and well-behaved children, 
that we might rejoice in a life that is easy and free from stress. No, that we might rejoice in you. Full stop. This is the appeal of the psalmist. And friend, if you came looking for revival for any other reason than that, you will leave disappointed because he will not settle for lesser things. And if you leave with emotions stirred, they will burn off as quickly as dross because he's not interested in your emotion. He's interested in your devotion. This is the stuff of revival. And so we wanna ask you in the next few moments to respond, not to what I've said, hopefully only to the truth of God's word. And I just wanna ask you, do you want revival? Do you want to rejoice in God, my savior? This is it. And so as the band comes up, we wanna give you a moment to respond. We're not gonna linger over this again because it's not about the emotion. I 100% agree with Jess. Invitation times are beneficial because moving physically aligns with the spiritual movement that God is doing in us. And sometimes we need the reminder because you can sit right where you are and make a commitment, but you'll doubt that commitment in your car. And so I wanna ask you to stand and the band's gonna come out and begin to play for just a few minutes. But I wanna do this in two parts. If you know Jesus, if you know that you know that you know Jesus, I'm gonna get to you in a minute. But will you pray right now? I mean it. Will you do battle in the kingdom of heaven for those in this room who don't know Jesus? That's your job. I'm gonna ask you to close your eyes right now and pray. Pray against distraction. Pray against deceit. Pray against independence. Pray against a hard heart. And if you have never said yes to Jesus, I was probably talking to you a little while ago and you felt a little bit of discomfort. You sensed that there was something happening in the room that you couldn't, you, you, you couldn't quite experience. There, were, there, there, there seemed like there was some wall and you could see other people and you, you, you wanted it, but just, it just didn't feel right. That wall is your sin. And Jesus wants to dismantle that wall. And in fact, he did it on the cross. But saying yes to Jesus means, Jesus, I, I want you to come in and I, I want you to take over my sin. I want you to be Lord of my life. I want you to forgive me and I want you to lead me. And now friend, right now, you don't have to know the answer to every question. In fact, you probably have more questions than you have answers. That's okay. The question that we need you to answer is this. Are you tired? Are you tired of trying to do it by yourself? So if the answer to that is yes, I wanna lead you in a very simple prayer. So with every head bowed, every eye closed, if you want to say yes to Jesus, if there's something stirring in your heart and you think, I think it's me, I wanna tell you it is. That's what it feels like for the Holy Spirit to draw you to himself. I want you to repeat these words in your heart. You don't have to say them out loud. I want you to say, Jesus, I'm a sinner and I'm tired and I know that something is wrong or, or broken or off in me. And I think I finally understand that I need you. Jesus, I don't fully understand what that means, but I want you to come in and be Lord of my life. And I wanna live for you. 
If you prayed that prayer for the first time and minute, would you raise your hand into the air? Every head is bowed, every eye is closed. If you prayed that prayer for the first time just now or earlier today, would you slip your hand into the air? Amen. Amen. Just another minute. Amen. Thank you for being bold. Anybody else? You know you've been doing it on your own and it's not working. And you want to say yes to Jesus. can put your hands down. Now, friends, will you look at me? I'm gonna tell you because I know the spirit of your leadership team. As fun as this day was, and as sweet as it was to be away and to open God's word and participate in worship, This was not designed to be a fun day. The prayer was always that you and I would encounter the living God, that we would hear his word and that we would be remade into the image of his dear son. And that means we must be broken. And so I just wanna ask you, I I don't even have to be quiet. I don't have to leave. You know, you know if you are resisting the Holy Spirit in an area of sin. You know it. And not because of emotion, not because we're asking for something dramatic to happen, but because God does not like your sin and he wants better for you. Will you say yes to Jesus about that sin and repent? Will you plead with him to bring revival so that we might rejoice in him? That is our prayer. And that's what the next few minutes are gonna be about. And so I'm gonna plead with you. I don't care if you move or not. Do not resist the Holy Spirit. Say yes. And once you've done business with the Holy Spirit, we wanna invite you to do one of the great commands in scripture of remembrance. Because Jesus said, remember, when he talked about the Lord's Supper. So we're gonna do that together. There are 11 stations that are set up in this room. We're gonna invite you as the Spirit leads to move towards one of those stations. You're gonna take a cracker and you're gonna dip it in the juice and you're gonna partake. And we want you to remember and rejoice for all that Jesus has done. This table is here for those who are His and only His. If you come to this table and you're not the Lord Jesus, it's just a snack. (laughs) But for those of us who are his, it is a reminder that he's already met my soul's deepest felt need. My sin has been paid for. He is the propitiation for my sins. And so as we begin to sing, we're gonna invite you to partake. But I'm gonna ask you to do this. Do not, do not, do not corrupt the table without dealing with your sin. This is the command of Jesus. And so we want you to come to the table. 
But will you talk to Jesus about your sin first? Just talk to him about it. And may we be women who leave today more aware of our sin, but more grateful for the cross than we ever have been before. Let me pray over us. Father, we thank you that your word is faithful. We thank you that you do what only you can do. And that your Holy Spirit interprets scripture and applies it to our hearts in just the way we need it. God, I confess there are places in my heart where I have been stubborn about my sin, where I've laughed it off or pretended it didn't matter, and I know that it offends you. And so, Lord, for all the ways I wanna rehearse your character and all the ways that I'm pleading for revival, God, my desire is that you would change me to make me look more like Jesus that I would be able to rehearse the ways that your character has been on display in my life, that I would rejoice to the glory of the matchless name of Jesus. But in all of this, in all of this, may you be glorified, Father. In your name we pray, amen.